What does ideal humanity look like? Uh, the perfect, complete, ideal human. Apparently, this is something that we as humans are interested in. There's books and seminars and YouTube channels abound that promise to help us to achieve whatever that ideal is. And that points out something interesting. We think, we know that there is such thing as an ideal human, and we, at least most of us, we know it isn't us, at least as we currently are. But what is the ideal human? Form a picture in your mind, and what do you think of? Does he have a a precise physique? Does she have a certain sized waist? Do you have a specific hair or eye or skin color in mind? The 20th century had some of that play out. Is your ideal human comprised of certain distinctions about intelligence, personality, interests, or character? What does ideal humanity look like? We're in Colossians chapter 3. We're focusing in on 12 through 15, but I'm going to read 1 through 15 to make sure that we keep the flow of thought. Definitely a unit Colossians chapter 3, uh, if, you've, if you've not turned, please open your copy of God's Word to follow along with me. Colossians 3, starting in verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Doesn't that remind us of the reading, what Stephen saw, even as he was giving his life in faithfulness to the gospel? Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, there is not Greek and Jew circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Last week, we considered the four R's of faith-fueled repentance. These four R's are not merely steps in a process that we follow to reach a certain 
uh, conclusive, inevitable goal. It's not patterns in a process. It's not steps that you take to, for self-help. They are the Holy Spirit's pattern in transforming us as Christians. And this pattern begins at our conversion when we trust in Christ and are given new life in him. And this pattern, this same pattern, continues in and throughout our lives, never ceasing and never coming to completion in this life. These four R's are our new manner of life, Paul calls them in Ephesians chapter 4. A manner of life. That which consists in our lives, or it's what characterizes our new existence. It is, it is the new rhythm in which we live our lives. We all have a rhythm to our lives. We had a rhythm to our old lives. This is the rhythm of our new lives. Here are those four R's. We first, we are, we are, it starts with a recognizing of our sin. God, the Holy Spirit, convicts us of our sin, drawing our attention to what God calls sin in his word and helping us to see or recognize those things in our own lives. This is sin. You've done this. You've sinned. Right? Syllogism if you're studying logic. We recognize our sin. We work in, there's a work in renewing our, or not renewing our sin. No, don't do that. Removing your sin. With God's help, we respond to the Spirit's convicting work with a negative change. We seek to stop a certain behavior or attitude by putting it to death like a dangerous beast threatening us or by stripping it off like dirty clothes. Moves on to the pattern, continues in a matter of renewing your mind. Again, by the Holy Spirit, our minds, our hearts, our spiritual attention, this is drawn upward and focused on Christ. Our minds seek that which is above. Our affections are set on those things. And then finally, a matter of replacing your sin. And this is followed by, by the sinful behavior, actions, words, thoughts, being replaced with righteous behavior, righteous actions, words, and thoughts, recognizing, removing, renewing, replacing the rhythm in which we live our new life in Christ, the pattern of the Holy Spirit's ongoing, ceaseless work throughout our lives. Verses 5 through 11 focused mainly on the recognizing and removing our sin. That was my primary emphasis last week. But starting in verse 12, Paul begins with another command. Do you see it? Put on then. And we naturally see this as the, the necessary completion of putting off, right? You all seem to, by, uh, very thankfully, uh, by myself as well. You don't just take off your dirty clothes, uh, you put on clean clothes. If instead of clothing, Paul used a gardening illustration, maybe he could have said, pull out the weeds, pull out the thorns, and plant cultivate the flowers or vegetables. Don't just strip it to bare earth, right? But you're pulling out so that you can plant something new. If, if he was using a building illustration, he could say, tear down the old building and don't just leave rubble and build up the new one in its place. Interwoven with removing your sin and replacing your sin, steps two and four, or steps, I keep saying that, pattern points two and four, interwoven with removing and replacing is the renewing of your mind. And as I mentioned last week, renewing your mind or a transformed thinking 
is such a massively important part of this pattern. And I believe it is the part of the pattern, recognizing, removing, renewing, replacing. Renewing is the part of the pattern where we see most clearly that we are dependent on the Holy Spirit. Now hear me well, I did not say it is the part in which we are dependent on the Holy Spirit. I said it is the part where we see most clearly that we are dependent on the Holy Spirit for the whole pattern. I think we most clearly see it in renewing our minds because it's something that you can't do. It is not helpful for anybody to just say to you, change the way that you think or just change the way that you feel. Kind of like, how? Like, what does that even mean? And as a matter of fact, it's, it's, we see it most clearly, even in how Paul talks about it. Uh, sister passage to this, Ephesians 4, we've looked at both last week and this week. Paul actually says, he's telling them to put off. You're like, oh yeah, okay, I understand that. And he's going to say later, he's going to say, and put on. You're like, all right, yeah, I get that. In the middle of that, in, a, in the form of a command, he says, I want you to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Be renewed. Not renew your minds, be renewed in your minds. We could think of this command as saying, get your mind renewed by the Holy Spirit. Or have this transformation worked in you. It has to happen, but you can't do it. Go, go get it done. Like, so, wait, so I'm doing it or it's being done? Like, yes. <laughs> have the Holy Spirit come to you. Maybe it's like someone telling you, have your teeth cleaned. You may admit your need of the change. Uh, You may show up for the appointment, but you need the hygienist to get in there and start scraping all that plaque off. Uh, You can't do it yourself, and you don't do it to yourself. Renewing your mind, a work of the Spirit. And we may approach God, and we should approach him prayerfully, recognizing even our need for our minds to be renewed. We cannot do it ourselves. What the Bible calls the renewal of your mind is transformation worked in you from the top down, from the mind down to maybe the hands or the feet, our actions. You could say it is transformation from the inside out, the transformation from our hearts to our actions, transformation that has to work in and then out or top and then down. And one of my favorite parts of this portion of Colossians that we've looked at a little bit of last week to tie us into this week. Paul outlines this pattern and he uses the same wording to communicate two separate truths. There's there's our new reality and our new responsibility. Our new reality and our new responsibility. And here's what I mean. Look at verse eight. But now you must, you believer, you must put them all away. There's obvious sense of responsibility there, right? Which is why it's green. If you're colorblind, these slides are useless to you. I apologize, but they're green because this is part of a responsibility. You must. Okay, but then look at verse 9. Do not lie, seeing that you have put off the old self. That's not something that you must do. That's something that has happened. That is a sense of a reality. This is what has happened. You must put them all away. Responsibility. You have put them away. Reality. Then we can go to verse 10. And you have put on the new self. Another statement of reality. 
Then we get to the command in verse 12, we see the responsibility that says, put on. So as we read this, we get that sense, I started off last week of that, that tension of like, am I doing it or is God doing it? Yes. Is it something that has happened or something that needs to happen? Yes. Right? You must put away because you have put away and you have put on, so you must put on. We see these, this inner working of a reality and a responsibility. And this is really important. Our responsibility as believers flows out of our reality as believers. Or your responsibility as a follower of Jesus flows out of your reality as a follower of Jesus. We could rephrase this, shorten it a little bit to say our lifestyle flows out of our identity. Instead of reality, we have identity. Instead of responsibility, we have lifestyle. And we could, we could say our lifestyle, this is a little bit different, but our lifestyle actually reveals our identity. Identity is a big word these days, isn't it? I mean, identity is everything in our world right now. Our identity is who we think we are or who we know ourselves to be. We then act, we live according to what we perceive or accept to be true about ourselves and true about the world around us. Our lifestyle reveals who we think we are. Our lifestyle reveals what we think about the world around us, our place in that. Our lifestyle reveals our identity. Let's see if we can understand this by looking at the opposite of it a little bit. Imagine a man who stays late at a bar every night of the week, flirting with every woman that he sees. He may be married, but he isn't acting like it. His lifestyle is contrary to his true identity. You see, we recognize the reality of his marriage provides certain responsibilities that he is neglecting. He should be at home. He should be enjoying the blessed friendship and fellowship of his wife. His desires run contrary to his responsibilities. And when that happens, he should remember the reality of his marriage and he should go home. But his lifestyle reveals his lack of concern about his reality as a married man. And we see a disconnect there. And we, see, we say he should see a disconnect there because he's not acting according to what is true of him. Imagine a woman you might see at Walmart. She's dressed in threadbare clothes. She's driving an old puttering car. And the only thing in her shopping cart are packages of generic saltine crackers and a, a few tins of sardines that you find out she eats for every meal. You know, our hearts would, would break for her. What if you offered to help pay for more and better groceries? Let's get some vegetables, some fruit in that. Let's get some, some meat that hasn't been salted into oblivion and put into a can. You offer to pay for that. You offer to give her a new coat only to find out she's actually the heiress to a multi-billion dollar fortune. Her bank account has so much money in it, she doesn't even know what to do with herself. Well, she may have access to limitless wealth, but she certainly doesn't seem to be utilizing it, right? Her lifestyle doesn't seem to be, her meager lifestyle doesn't seem to be connected to the reality of her wealth. We see a disconnect there. 
And that unfaithful married man, his, he's not, the reality isn't revealing itself in those type of things. And the reality of her wealth is not revealing itself in how she's living. Something is missing to those things. Like Proverbs 13, 7, one pretends to be rich, yet has nothing. Another pretends to be poor, yet has great wealth. And in both of those cases, the person's lifestyle doesn't seem to match their identity, that which is true of them. But what does it look like when we are properly convinced of a new reality? What does this look like positively? Have you ever had a dress code for school or work? I guess at home school you don't have that. Dress code for school and work, anybody? Yeah? I, I, from third grade through college, even in grad school, actually, I had a dress code. I could uh, talk about those stories. Actually, uh, one of them had to do with uh, light blue Oxford shirts. So anytime I put this on, even though it's been 25 some odd years, almost 30 years since I had to wear them, I still think of Sacred Heart Grade School. But in college, for example, I had to wear khaki pants and a collared shirt with a tie every day until lunch, always tucked in. Our hair couldn't go beyond a certain length. All male students had to shave. Sideburns couldn't go below the bottom of the ear. The reality of my life was that I was a student at that school, so I had the responsibility to follow the dress code. So I did. And then on Saturday, May 12th, 2007, my reality changed. I graduated from that college, was no longer a student, and with a few regrettable exceptions, I have never shaved my entire face again. I remember, like, they had, they had RAs, resident assistants, right, um, spies. They had spies posted at the door to the gymnasium where our graduation ceremony, and they checked every single senior, and they wouldn't let you in the door if you weren't clean-shaven. So I shaved that morning, and just, like, burned the razors. I'm done. I embraced, with Leanne's permission, she's wonderful, because I was getting married in a month and she, she allowed my, that was a reality that I could have facial hair at our wedding. I embraced my new reality and my freedom from that responsibility. Praise God for not shaving. <laughs> Consider someone who puts on or puts off a military uniform, not just as a costume for Halloween, but as something that points to their commitment to that particular branch. That reality of their commitment to that branch flows into a responsibility to serve, which is represented by the wearing of their uniform. Before enlisting or after retiring, they do not have the responsibility to serve in the same way. They no longer answer the orders of those superior officers. I imagine that you enjoyed the first day out from underneath that, brother. And we can also imagine those wonderful fairy tale stories where a poor, mistreated commoner is chosen by the charming prince to be his bride. Will she continue to scrounge for food in the gutters or will she enjoy her new life in the palace? It's not just a responsibility that flows from that reality, it's an opportunity that flows from those things. What about someone born into slavery to a cruel master? That's all that they've known. If they are set free, their reality has changed, but they need to grow in understanding the responsibility, the opportunity now available to them as one who has been set free. Our identity, our reality, deeply affects our lifestyle and our sense of the responsibility that we have in our lives. It's not something that ought to be, it's just something that is. 
So as Christians, as followers of Christ, who are we? What is our reality? We could start at the beginning of Colossians again, (laughs) done that review a few times, compile a list of what God says is now true of us in Christ. But I'll just try to stick with verses 12 through 15 in our passage today. Starting in verse 12, Paul kicks us off right off the bat. Put on then as God's chosen ones. Christian, you are one of God's chosen ones. You have been personally, individually selected by the God of eternity, the omniscient God who has eternally known about all of your sins and failures. He has chosen you. We call this the doctrine of election, and I know it can be hard to understand or to embrace But don't let the mysterious and often controversial theology behind this distract you from the marvelous truth that you belong to God. And you belong to him because he chose you. And in belonging to him, let it sink in that he wants you to be with him. It is not impersonal. It's the exact opposite. Intensely, eternally purposeful. His choice of you was not random. It was not pointless. It was not deserved. But nevertheless, you have been chosen by God purposefully, intentionally, graciously. Choice bestowed on the undeserving. You are God's chosen one, one of his chosen people. Put on then as God's chosen ones, he's going to go on. You are holy. You are holy, Christian. As one of God's chosen ones, you are holy. And this is not the personal holiness of a righteous life. We're talking about like, be holy for I am holy, right? Demonstrate holiness. Allow that responsibility to flow out of that. Not what he's saying here. He does say that. We'll get to that. But this is not a responsibility piece. He's not saying be holy here. He's saying you are holy. So he's not just talking to those who are righteous. He's not talking about a personal holiness. We could say instead of a personal holiness, we could talk about a positional holiness, that which is ours in Christ. Because through faith in Christ, you have been set apart. You have been made holy by God, chosen by him for a special purpose. Not that you, not you will be holy here, not you might be holy, not you have to be holy No, before a perfectly holy God, you are holy right now because of Jesus. As holy as Jesus is in God's sight, you right now are that holy. Because of Jesus. We are holy We are beloved, beloved, however you want to say that. Christian, as God's chosen one, you are beloved. A dearly loved child of God. I cannot read the word beloved in scripture and not think of God the Father's words about Jesus. 
both at, about, at, at his baptism and on the Mount of Transfiguration, this, the voice from heaven, the Father himself speaking into creation, saying, this one is my beloved son. Right? Words that eternally had been spoken about, the one who would be Jesus. And we, like, it's like, ah, I should, I should distance myself from that. Right? Because I'm not, I'm not Jesus. I'm not eternally God's son. I, I have, I'm not eternally anything. I'm not eternal. There's a relationship that exists between the Father and the Son, the Spirit, in eternity that, that I've not been a part of. Like, and that's kind of the whole point. Because now I am a part of it. Is I'm in Christ, the dearly loved one. So I am, you are, as beloved to the Father as the Son is. Because you are in the Son. It's not love that's been taken from the Son and given to you. It's the love for the Son that his people are inside of. You are loved in Christ, dearly beloved in his Son. It's an unimaginable privilege of our union with Christ. You may feel like an outsider in God's family, but that simply isn't true. You're not the stepchild under the stairs. It may that never be. You are as beloved by God as Christ is because we are beloved in the beloved one. That's how we are loved. God's love for Christ has now become his love for us. This is true. Not it might be true. Not it will be true. It is true. Right now, you are chosen you are holy, you are beloved. And then finally, from these verses at least, these few, according to verse 13, do you see what it says? You are forgiven. The Lord has forgiven you. Right there in the middle. Christian, you are forgiven. A forgiven sin is no longer punishable. A forgiven debt is no longer owed. Every single individual sin that you have ever and will ever commit was removed from your record and placed on Christ on the cross. When we start to believe that, we can think the sin's up to a certain point. We can start to think like, yeah, up, up to the moment of my conversion, right? All of my confessed sins have been placed on Christ, but what about the sins I haven't confessed, right? Up to the point when I was saved, I I believe that those sins were placed on Christ, that that's not all of it. Everything from from conception, your your place in Adam, your first sin, conscious decision to be who you were, to the moment of your death, every sin eternally known by God placed on Christ, You are right now forgiven of your sins. God does not look at you and think sinner. He looks at you and thinks chosen one, holy, beloved. That 
is the reality of who we are and our identity as those who are in Christ, chosen, holy, beloved, and forgiven. This is who you are. These things are are aspects of your your God-determined reality or identity. And and as our minds are renewed about our reality in Christ, because that's a step of of the renewal of our mind. Who am I? My Paul is emphasizing these things. As our minds are renewed about our new reality in Christ, we begin to see our new responsibilities in Christ. Our new identity and our grasp of that identity leads us to our new lifestyle. Because in Christ, I have put off the old self. Now, by the Holy Spirit, I must remove the old self's clothes. Because in Christ, I have put on the new self, I must now, by the Holy Spirit, I I must put on the new self's clothes. Not live like I am who I was, live like I am who I am. Again, this, this is the pattern of God's work in his people. We see it so clearly, even in Exodus 20. Like when we think of the responsibilities of God's people, what does God want us to do? I mean, everybody jumps right to Ten Commandments, right? And everybody could start, maybe even start memorizing the Ten Commandments. How, does the ten, how do the Ten Commandments start? Thou shalt have no other gods before me, right? No, you're all wrong. <laughs> it's a trick. Ten Commandments start in Exodus 20, verses 1 and 2, where it says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Right? This is who I am. This is what I have done for you. Now live out responsibility. Right? God speaks truth and redeems his people before he ever says, now go do. Reality always precedes responsibility. So we ask, like, who is God? And what has he done for me? What has he done in me? How must I respond? Who am I? God's chosen one. He has made me holy. He has treated me as beloved. He has forgiven me of my sin. I want to remove it and replace it. You see? I think that the renewing of our minds follows a progression. I want to think about thinking. (laughs) I want to think about renewing my mind. What is that going to look like? Because if, if my responsibility to put off and put on flows out of my reality, which all encompasses this renewing of my mind, interwoven with all of it, renew my mind about recognizing sin, renew my mind about removing sin, remove my, renew my mind about renewing my mind, renew my mind about put, putting on, replacing sin. I want to think, how does, that, how does that work? Like, what is that going to look like? What is that going to feel like? What, what is my thinking changing? And I think that the renewing of our minds follows a progression that affects how we engage in removing our sin and replacing our sin. And here's what I mean by that. When we first accept Christ, when we read a command in Scripture, we're confronted by our sinful disobedience. We want to act according to our reality. We know that we have a responsibility before God. So we we think, I don't get to sin anymore. 
Right? Like if a lying is a pattern in your life to deal with difficulties in relationship or avoiding responsibilities, you're in Christ, you're forgiven of all those things, so you have a new reality, and you start to think about lying. It says, don't lie to one another, well, don't bear false witness, don't lie. Like, okay, all right, so I don't get to escape responsibility. I don't get to diffuse difficult situations by lying. I don't get to sin anymore. We also might say like, well, I must not sin anymore so I won't be punished. Revelation 21.8, all liars will be thrown into the lake of fire. I don't want that. I've been rescued from that. I don't want, mm-mm. So you might be like, I don't get to do this anymore even though it's my, my pattern. It's been my rhythm of life. I don't get to do that. I gotta break that. I must not sin anymore so I won't be punished. You know what? Those are true statements, Right? Do you just get to lie? No. Is it true that you must not lie? Yes. But I think that they are only the beginning of the renewal of our mind. I don't get to and I must not are like toddler level spiritual thinking. Don't be offended by that. Don't don't be resistant to descriptions of immaturity or ignorance when it comes to your spiritual state. Proud fools resist instruction and correction, but the humble wise welcome it and grow in maturity. If you have the expectation that you have to be wise, wiser than everyone else, that you have to be more mature than everyone else, then at the first thought that you're thinking on something is less than wise, we're like, oh, okay, you know, 30 years, 40 years, 50 years of following Christ Kind of like, yeah, but you're thinking about this issue. It's, it's actually kind of immature. Like, how dare you think about that? Well, okay, apparently you're thinking about pride is also immature. Uh, so is mine. Like it's, <laughs> to fast forward, maturity is Jesus. How do you compare? Like, let's have two categories. Spiritual immaturity, spiritual maturity. Jesus is in the spiritually mature category. Where do you want to put yourself? You know, in comparison, be like, it's like the, the, the kindergartners were like, I'm three foot five and a quarter. You're only three foot five. I'm so much taller than you. Like, it's my kindergartner voice. I don't get to sin. I must not sin. True. Just not not all of renewing your mind. So how does that progression grow? As the Holy Spirit renews our minds, we move from I don't get to sin anymore to I don't have to sin anymore. I know I've mentioned this a few times, but that really is a different shift. It really is showing a renewal of our thinking where we have a maturing realization of the freedom from sin's power that Christ has purchased for us on the cross. Not just forgiveness from punishment, but actually like freedom from its tyranny over your life. And this also is not the solitary goal of the renewal of our minds. It is not that the final stage of transformation where we recognize that there actually is, by the power of the Holy Spirit, there is an option, right? Like it feels like there's not an option. I have to sin. No, you don't. But I don't get to and I must not is not, an, is not maturity, And so I don't have to is an aspect of freedom, but then we move beyond that. Jesus 
didn't just think in his life of perfect righteousness, he did not just go around all the time thinking, I don't get to sin. I do not believe that that was the mindset of Jesus. And not just, I must not sin. And not just, I don't have to sin. Jesus' perfect obedience flowed out of his heart saying, I don't want to sin. I don't want to. This is what we are pursuing. This is what we are longing for in the renewal of our minds, hearts and minds that are so captivated by Christ, so convinced of our new freedom that we don't desire sin anymore. We lose the taste for it. Like once you've experienced the wonder of something, you don't want to go back to the cheap alternatives. The feeling of that wicked polyester irritates our skin And we delight in the righteousness of cotton, wool, linen, and silk. That at least applies, it's a good illustration to at least one person in this room. We will will want the fullness of what is ours in Christ. And if you're like, oh, I'm not there. Neither am I. I want to want that. Right? I want to grow. I want my mind renewed to where I think about life like Jesus did. And I think about sin like Jesus did. And I can get away from just, oh, I don't get to. I'm missing out. I must not because the punishment stings. It's like, oh, I don't have to. And it's like, <laughs> I don't even want to. This same thing applies to the replacing our sin that we see into verses 12 to 15. I must be righteous. I must be holy. Like, yes, yes, you must, but it's true, but it's just, it's immature thinking. And we, we, we maturing realization, you know what? I, I can be righteous and holy, not, not in me, right? We just sang that, not in me, but in you, in Christ, by the Holy Spirit, you can obey the commands that God has given to you. It wasn't possible before, but it is possible now for you to put off and put on. You can by the Holy Spirit in you. And we grow even further. We, we, this culminates in that I want to be righteous. I want to be holy like Christ is holy. I want and God is developing in us hearts transformed into a full and total love for God hear this, you don't start here when you are first saved. You don't, okay? This is not just like day one. I have no desires for anything contrary to what God's will is. Why would Jesus teach us to pray, your will be done on earth right here in me as it is in heaven if it was just going to automatically happen? We pray for it because it needs to be pursued prayerfully. So it doesn't happen first, right? Uh, do you remember when you were a young married couple, like last year? A young married couple normally doesn't have a kitchen full of pots and pans or an attic full of holiday decoration boxes. Like our first Christmas, maybe we had a tree and like a few ornaments that we bought at Target, most of which have broken now. And now we have... 15 years in, we have like seven boxes full of of ornaments, decorations that accumulate over time, right? So you don't have a mature house of decorations uh, 
as a young couple as you do as an older couple. Now, if you think of that stuff only as clutter and you think holiness is getting it out of your attic, then just scrap the illustration. Uh, Probably men don't listen to that one, but women, you're like, yes, we do have the Christmas decorations and I love them so much. I don't love them so much, but that was just for other people. You don't start, I want, I really want to not sin. I really want righteousness. You don't start off there. Your mind needs to be renewed into that thinking. So don't have unrealistic expectations. You know, progress in one area, this is another part of this pattern which becomes lifelong and across the whole spectrum of our lives, a new rhythm that we're in. Progress in one area doesn't guarantee the same progress in another area. Just because you are starting like, I don't want to lie anymore, doesn't mean I don't want to be selfish anymore. Right? Those are, those are separate things, all of which require this type of transformation. I mean, like remodeling your bathroom doesn't mean that your roof is fixed or that your new deck is built. Right? You have a whole, you have a whole house, a whole property worth of improvements that need to be made in your soul. Working on one area, having the Holy Spirit work on one area, doesn't mean that every other area is improved. Don't be discouraged by that, right? Recognize you have growth in a thousand different fronts. The Holy Spirit knows about all of them. You don't. And he is working on all of them in his perfect timing. Trust the Spirit in these things. Don't be discouraged. Also, you will never fully or perfectly reach this goal of, I don't want to sin because I love Jesus so much. I want to do righteousness because I I love the Father so much. You will never perfectly reach that goal. But one day, an actual day, after your life here on earth is finished, you will be fully transformed. It will happen. It just won't happen here and now. It happens there and then. But it's still a real day. We are waiting for Christ to come and to complete his work in us. We grow toward Christ-like maturity gradually. Maybe it starts with not wanting to sin before we're tempted, but we still choose sin, we repent. Maybe after we sin, we wish that we hadn't. Maybe, maybe you battle admitting and confessing for a week. And then as your mind is renewed, then you only battle for two days. And then you battle for five minutes. And then there's not even a battle. Like you sin again for the thousandth time and immediately you're like, there it was again. That's what I want to put off. I love Jesus more than this. Be like, you still sinned? Yes, but I grew in repentance because it went from a week to instantaneous. Maybe it continues to move backward to actually like in the moment, I recognize the choice between sin and dishonoring God and choosing righteousness and honoring God. And maybe in the moment, instead of the regret afterward, I'm like, you know what? I don't want to do this right now. Right? The renewal brings that backward. Maybe that's just one way that that looks like. We start to experience and recognize during temptations I, I am new, I have new desires, and I start to see my new desires triumphing over my old desires. What exactly does that look like? What does replacing our sin look like? Thankfully, just as Paul gave us concrete examples of the sins that we must remove in verse 5 and 6 and, and 8 and 9, he also gives us concrete examples of the righteous clothing that we must put on. 
put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Some call this, these lists up at the top in verses 5 through 9, talks about those as, as vice lists, the evil vice list. And if they do that, they talk about verses 12 through 15 and on, they talk about that as a virtue list, vice versus virtue, so it can be alliterated. Let's define these a little bit just to look at what, does, what are we to put on? What is the responsibility that flows out of our reality as God's chosen ones, holy, beloved, and forgiven? What are we supposed to want? <laughs> Compassionate hearts. Older translations take this as bowels of mercy. We think of heart. Uh, older peoples and, uh, and other languages, they didn't think about hearts. They moved a little bit further. Like, where do you, where do you feel it, right? Because, I mean, your heart pumps blood. It has nothing to do with your emotions, right? So, like, we're so scientific. We're going to talk about it in our heads, right? Our minds. That's where this is all happening. But do you feel it up here? Do you feel emotions here? No. You don't feel them up here. You, know, you don't even feel them necessarily here. You feel them here. And so, they talked about their guts. So, the King James, the bowels of mercy. <laughs> I love that, right? Deep down in your guts, what do you feel for others? You're supposed to feel mercy, right? When confronted by the needs of people around us, this is a tender-hearted, merciful, emotional expression of reaching out to them in their need. This is what we're supposed to put on. This is what Jesus had. Luke chapter 19, he is drawing near to Jerusalem, Jesus, who knows everything that's going to happen to him, the way he's been mistreated, the way he will be mistreated, the way he will be rejected, and the judgment of God that would fall on Jerusalem as it did in AD 70. When he drew near and saw the city filled with his enemies, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes." John eleven thirty five, 35, shortest verse, powerful verse of Jesus' humanity. At the funeral of Lazarus, surrounded by grievers, moments before he raised him from the dead, Jesus wept. His heart, his emotions moved by the needs of those around him in a broken world. Do we have bowels of mercy? Do we have compassionate hearts? We put on kindness also. The feelings that we have of compassion, they show forth in acts of kindness, in acts of goodness to meet the needs of other people. Not just like, oh, I feel so bad. It's like, no, I feel bad and I'm moved to help. Oh, be warmed and fed, but I'm not going to give you a coat and I'm not going to give you any food, right? The Bible uses that as like, what, what is that? What, is, what are the emotions if it doesn't produce actions? Have we put on both the emotions of really caring about other people and demonstrating that to other people? Have we put on humility? Oh, we talk about humility. 
got this great illustration of humility because in college, I almost demonstrated humility once. Leanne remembers this. She doesn't know the story yet, but we were sitting in a special college chapel our senior year uh, honoring teachers and maybe some students. Um, And I was talking to her instead of paying attention. Uh, That wasn't the almost humble part. And they're describing like this student that had been involved in his local church. And I was involved in my local church. Uh, And he had been involved in like singing with their choir and leading singing. And I'd been involved in singing in the choir and leading singing and doing some other drama type stuff. And he taught a Sunday school class and, and I had taught a Sunday school class. And so I'm making fun of this person to Leanne uh, because it's like, what a sham these stupid awards are because I did all of those things um, and, and it was me. And it was just like, did he just say my name? And so the almost humility was like, I hadn't been thinking of like, I want to get an award by being involved in my local church, right? That was like where, where humility was like starting to, to grow a little bit, right? It's just like, I love the Lord, love his people, serve in the church. Like that's like, there was cultivation happening by the spirit there. And then you started to think about it. It was kind of like, why is this jerk getting pat on the back for it? I did all that too. It was just like, oh, I... I still have that award. It's not hung up anywhere because it just stings a little bit. I think that's the reminder. Because uh, humility isn't just kind of like, look at, look at what I've done without any praise. Uh, boy, you know, it's just, I just want everybody to know how little I've asked of anybody to know about me. You know how low I am? Everybody should know how low I am. How much I've served without ever asking for any thanks. I've just done this. Uh, no. Uh, C.S. Lewis talks about the fact that when you meet a humble person, uh, he's not thinking about humility. Uh, he's not thinking about himself at all. You can kind of tell this is a mere Christianity because he keeps talking about you. That's how I know I'm not humble because how much I love to talk about myself. Right? But the humble person's not thinking about himself. He's thinking about others. What about Jesus? You remember Philippians 2? Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit and humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And then we're like, yeah, okay, yeah, I can totally do that sometimes uh, for a little while, as long as somebody recognizes it. Because there's no model of perfection of this, right? Well, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count it robbery to to be equal with God, but made himself nothing. Made himself the form of a lowly servant, you know, like a human being. The creator becoming created and not stopping there. Becoming obedient to the point of death. Punished for crimes he didn't commit out of a humble, not thinking of himself at all, service to his people. <sighs> put, on, put on that. How much do you think about yourself? Put that off. How much do you think about others? What's best for them? Put that on. May God give us renewed hearts, minds that reflect Christ.
We put on meekness or, or gentleness. Great definition of this, common, that meekness is a strength under control. Not meekness is weakness, right? Unfortunate rhyme in our language. You're not doing anything because you can't do anything. That's not what this is. But this is the opposite, one person said, of, of rudeness, the opposite of harshness. Meekness is, is not using all of the power that you have available to you, physically, emotionally, in your words, not using all of that power to just to get your way and to assert yourself over somebody else. Jesus in his trials and crucifixion had a perfect demonstration of a strength submitted to Christ, to, to the Father. I don't do what I want. I do what the Father wants. I'm not going to feed myself in his temptations. I'm going to submit myself to the Father's will. Even though he could have turned those stones into bread, he didn't because of submission. There's a meekness in that. There's also that meekness of not crushing his enemies and a meekness in dealing with his disciples. Are we putting on meekness in our conversations with each other or in our conversations about each other? Are we putting on a meekness or a gentleness, some aspect of a restraint of what we could say or do in conversations with or about other people, especially those that we disagree with? It seems in our day on social media and in the public square, all that matters is being right and making our opponents look like idiots. Seems like that's all that matters now. That is not meekness. That is not the attitude that Christ had in dealing with people. Yes, he did. He overthrew the temple twice in a three-year ministry. He didn't walk around yelling, screaming, and hitting all of the time. That's not how it was. It's like, we can just, we, we can miss both sides. There's ditches, right? It's kind of like, oh, Jesus was just always nice and quiet. And he never spoke truth with boldness. Well, that's not true. But you know what also wasn't true? Is that he walked around yelling. Every sermon wasn't, you, you brood of vipers, scribes, and Pharisees, hypocrites. That was one sermon. Not all of his sermons. So Christ's likeness sees the fact that there are extremes on both sides that we can miss and that we're drawn to on one side. So what we communicate to others is important. How we communicate to others is important. And it demonstrates the humility of Christ-like meekness Or how we respond to other people demonstrates the arrogance and harshness. Are we going to put on meekness? Are we going to put off the anger and wrath and malice and slander and obscene talk from our mouth? We put on patience or long-suffering, the opposite of resentment, the opposite of revenge, the opposite of wrath. Do you have a category in your mind how many times you'll allow someone to offend you or ignore you before you feel justified in snapping at them? How many times do you get to be wronged before it's okay for you to act back out at it? How, How long will you suffer wrongdoing against you? Well, how long has God suffered with our sin against him and you still have never faced his wrath? Matter of fact, you'll you're in Christ, you'll never face his wrath. We put on a patience and a long-suffering and a willingness to endure mistreatment at the hands of others against ourselves. This is how we've been treated. And these five things, we will 
What he goes to next of this bearing with one another in verse 13, I think he shifts. We put this on and then, and then actions flow out of them. And so I will see the fruit of these virtues in myself when I find myself bearing with others. You could put, I could say this is like putting up with them, but boy, doesn't that sound kind of negative? <laughs> I'll put up with them. That's not quite the, that, that, it's not that negative connotation. I'm better, they're worse, I'm strong, they're weak, but I'll put up with them. But sometimes we are confronted by people that in their, their weakness or in their suffering, they are weak or suffering in an area that we are not. And we fail to understand what's going on. Like, why, why do you keep having this difficulty? Like, why do you keep being sick? It's not their fault that they're sick, but just kind of like, kind of tired of, tired of you being sick. Like, I'm tired of you being weak and frail, tired of these emotional needs that you have on these type of things. Like, bear with one another with patience, with long-suffering, with compassionate hearts and kindness and humility. And we also forgive each other. If anyone has a complaint against another, legitimate offenses, not just weakness, not just suffering, but sin, how do you respond to the fact that people have and do and will sin against you? Jesus, on the cross, Father, forgive them. And then Stephen, as Brett read to us today, right? Can you, stoning wasn't pleasant. You get that, right? These hateful men gnashing their teeth, dragging him outside of the city because he had spoken the truth to them with kindness and boldness, spoken the fact that Jesus was Messiah, pointed out to them that they were guilty, to try to bring them into this same pattern of recognizing their sins. They could remove it with renewed minds and put these things on, right? Like trying to bring the same truth of the gospel to them. And they physically picked him up and dragged him outside of the city, found big rocks and started chucking them at him to try to crush his skull and kill him. He sees this vision of glory, a justification from God that's like that you are in the right. And as he falls down, not because he tripped, but because he's passing into unconsciousness, he prayed like Jesus did, please don't hold this against them. That's a renewed mind. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. When we're attacked, we hate. But when Christ was attacked, he loved. And his people with renewed minds can put on that same forgiving each other. How? How? How is that ever possible? Because we have been forgiven. First, first, we were forgiven. That is a fact. That's a reality. That changes everything. Putting on Christ-likeness requires an interaction with other believers, bearing with one another, a complaint against another. Uh, if you lived separate from everyone else, like up on a, in a cave on a mountain where you never interacted with anyone, you would never have an opportunity to have a compassionate heart towards someone. You wouldn't be emotionally moved by that. You can't act in kindness if you're all by yourself, right? It's not humility unless you start to see other people that you think about instead of you. Right? And you can't bear with someone if there's no someone. You can't forgive if you aren't sinned against. And if you're not with any people, then you're not going to be sinned against. No opportunity to forgive. And so we start to see yet again an emphasis in Colossians on the just absolute importance of coming together as a body. You do not put on the righteousness of Christ 
without this mess, which is us, redeemed sinners, in community with each other. Like these, these things are like senseless without this context. And we don't only do that here, but it starts here. And it, and it grows here and it flows out from here to other people. It's kind of like, oh, I, I, I love and am kind to others uh, except my family. Like, man, you missed where it started, right? Like, oh, I'm just so humble and compassionate uh, to, to you, but not to Leanne. Like, I'm a hypocrite, right? Never angry toward you all. If I'm angry toward them, so like, right, it starts, it starts in different spheres. It starts in family. It, I think, moves to the body of Christ here in this church, then flows out from there. Do you go to all, especially those of the household of faith? Anyway, I can do all of those things only if I love them. Above all these, put on love. We can consider this a climactic, ultimate, above allness of love. Above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. This could be, if this is like part of the putting on, some people are like, this is the outer cloak that holds the whole outfit together. I'm going to put on the shirt of compassionate hearts and the, the shoes of kindness and the belt of humility. I'm making this up. Uh, and then I'm going to put on the outer cloak of love. It holds the whole outfit together. So maybe that's what Paul's emphasizing. There's another way that we could look at this, and really both of I think are true, that this could be love which actually binds everyone together. Love is the, the binding, the sinews, the tying together of completeness. It's incomplete without love. But love brings us together and brings all of those virtues together, putting on Christ means love for his people in his body. And boy, these things sound great in a sermon, don't they? <laughs> boy, these will preach. And then you start to think, like, but, but they're difficult in the real world. Right? Just kind of staring up at me, unless I'm the one that you don't want to have a compassionate heart toward. <laughs> unless I'm just the single greatest point of animosity for you. Which, apologize, let's talk about that. Uh, but they can seem like, yeah, okay, this is great now, but what about at lunch? Uh, what about this afternoon in the car? Uh, what about tomorrow? Like, where does this enter the real world? Uh, perhaps you're already thinking about the people in your lives and in this body that you interact with, perhaps ones that you have difficulty loving, and perhaps you have difficulty loving them because every attempt that you had, uh, they use that as yet another opportunity to punch you in the face, right? That they're not acting loving. You have compassionate hearts toward people that don't have compassionate hearts toward you. How long does that happen that you bear with those who won't bear with you and you forgive those who won't forgive you? It's all of a sudden you're kind of like, you know, maybe this doesn't work. Maybe this isn't reality. So have you ever felt the tension in your heart when you're asking about this, right? Like, don't think about yourself. Seek the interest of others. Treat them with meekness and gentleness. Suffer long. Bear with them. Forgive them. And then you're like, but what if things don't go right when I love unloving people? You ever asked yourself that question? Like, what if I give and give and they just take and take? What if things go terribly wrong? How can I know everything will be okay when I love in an otherworldly way in this world? And I think Paul answers that for us. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body. Christ's cosmic 
peace purchased on the cross. The wholeness of universal cosmic reconciliation he spoke about in verses 120. Through Christ on the cross, God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And so except having peace ruling in us, a wholeness of reconciliation that comes from Christ is not just I feel like everything is fine or okay. Things often aren't. But instead, the peace of Christ ruling in me is a confidence that Christ is thoroughly ruling over all, including my life, including the lives of those who are mistreating me, and it will all be made right. Because Christ will make it right. And a confidence that Christ has not missed a single thing that you've, you've done to honor him, a single thing that's been done against you, he's not missed any of that. Matter of fact, it's all actually part of his plan to bring everything under his authority. I'm not abandoned when I'm mistreated, when I seek to honor Christ in this way. I'm not abandoned and my suffering is not pointless. It's strategic. Your mistreatment, your suffering is strategic in Christ's victory over sin, over sin in you and over sin in his world. We don't see that now, but it's true nonetheless. That's a reality. Christ's victory. And be thankful. Just tax that on. Paul loves thankfulness. Be thankful. Why? Because everything good and bad comes from God. Everything. Everything comes from God, and it is for my eternal good. And it is for his eternal glory. And if that's true, then I can worship him. I can worship him with joy. That's what thankfulness is. Just receiving everything, being like, okay, yes. I I receive this because this is what you're doing. Who do you think you are? And that, that could be an accusatory question. Who do you think you are? That's not what this is. Who do you think you are? What is your identity? What is your reality? The truest you, the most real, most authentic, the most genuine you. Those are all catchphrases, right? Got to be authentic, got to be genuine. The real me, who I am on the, the inside, that is not determined by what you feel or what you think. That's not the real, genuine, authentic you. That's, it doesn't, it's not self-determined. It's actually God-determined. Who God knows you to be, who God says you are. So according to God's word, who does God say that you are? According to God's word, who do you know yourself to be? What is your reality? Non-Christian, you're not a follower of Christ, then however good or bad you feel about yourself, God says you are his enemy. God says that you are dead to righteousness, that you are separated from him, and that you are awaiting his wrath that comes on evildoers. And the only deliverance to that is found in trusting Jesus for your forgiveness, where you can have a new reality. But Christian, who do you know yourself to be? According to God's word, you are chosen, holy, beloved, 
and forgiven. And the renewing of your mind will result in the recognizing, removing, and replacing of your sin. The transformation of your heart that is ongoing will be revealed in the transformation of your life. And so welcome that pattern. Live in that pattern that the Holy Spirit is working in you. At the beginning, I asked, what does ideal humanity look like? And the correct answer is not Captain America or a charming beauty queen or a brilliant astrophysicist. The ideal perfect human is Jesus. That's what we're striving for. You think you're not enough in one area or another area, not smart enough, not handsome enough, not tall enough, too tall, too heavy, too skinny, brown eyes instead of blue eyes, straight hair, curly hair. I need to read more, I need to think more, I need to talk more, I need to talk less. I need to study more, I need to study less. Work more, work less. Play more, play less. Right? To reach this ideal of what I'm missing, the ideal is Jesus, who is clothed in compassion and kindness and humility and meekness and patience, who bore with us, who forgave us, who had love for us, who let the peace of his coming rule and the rule of his father dominate his heart and influence his decisions, and he worshiped with thankfulness. This is what we're striving for. This is who you you were made to want to be. This is what you were made for. Be like Jesus. That's what we're putting on. That's why we're putting off. Maybe for his glory. Father, Thank you for the pattern of your work in us, for giving us your word to help us to see those things. Thank you for choosing us. Thank you for making us holy. Thank you for choosing that we would be beloved by you, forgiving us of our sins. Thank you for Jesus, the fulfillment of all things. Amen.